So we've been coming through the book of Genesis together. And God's providence, we're at Genesis 41 today. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you so much again for your word. Lord, we know that we need you. We need you, Lord. Without you, God, without your word, we're foolish. God, in you we live and breathe all things, God. Without you, we can do nothing. So, Lord, we need you. But even more than that, Lord, we desire you. We long for you. We want to be nearer to you, God. You told us in your word to, to draw near to you. And you promised that you would draw near to us. And, God, we want to do that this morning. We want to draw near to you, Lord. Your presence is our good. Your nearness is our good. Lord, we've asked you many times that we would be a people of your presence. And we'd be a people that know what it is to worship you in spirit and truth. God, I pray that you would, you would bless us this morning, Lord. That as we meditate on your word together, as we look at these God-breathed words, that you would make us to be true worshipers in spirit and truth. Father, thank you so much that you hear our prayers. You said that whatever we ask in your name, you would do it. And that the Father might be glorified in the Son. And so, Lord, we're doing that now. We're asking you for this, that you would help us. That you would speak to us through your word. And we trust you, Lord, that you would hear our prayer and answer. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before we read this passage, we're in Genesis 41, which is a very long passage. Um, let's try to get a little bit oriented. So what we're going to see in Genesis 41, we're still talking about Joseph. We're still reading about Joseph. And we see here Joseph is going to go from the pit to the palace. He's going to go from the pit to the palace. If you remember, Joseph has endured 13 years of intense suffering. He's been rejected by his family, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, framed for a crime he didn't commit, thrown into prison. This man is going through some intense suffering. And there he is, as we saw last week, he's in prison. He does something good, but then he's forgotten. He's forgotten for that good thing that he's done. In fact, if you look at 41, verse 1, it says, After two whole years, that gives us a time reference. There he is. He interpreted the cupbearer's the dream. And he said, Just do this one thing for me. Do not forget this. But tell Pharaoh what you've seen. Tell him what I've done here. And it says the cupbearer forgot him. And there he is for two years, forgotten, unjustly, in prison. 
So he's going through a season of humiliation, 13 years of suffering. And in chapter 41, he's going from the pit to the palace. We're going to see him enter into his exaltation. So he's been in humiliation, but he's about to enter in to his exaltation. So we're going to read this passage just sort of section by section, and I'll make a few comments. And my, my desire is to just help us walk through the plain sense of what's here, what's in this chapter. So let's start chapter 41. We're going to read verse 1 through 8. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So we get this little glimpse of Joseph wasting away, so we think, in prison, forgotten, unjustly put into prison. And it says Pharaoh has this dream, and it's a very strange dream. In fact, it's a terrifying dream. I believe if you had this, this dream, or these two dreams, you would consider them nightmares. You have these seven healthy cows, and these seven ugly, thin, dying-looking cows. They eat the healthy cows. Can you imagine that? And then you have the same thing with ears of grain. These healthy ones, and these blighted ones, and these blighted ones swallow up. The healthy one. So he has this dream and he awakes and he's terrified. He's troubled in his spirit. He wants to know what do these dreams mean? And so he tries to get an interpretation from the magicians, but no one can interpret these dreams. Look at verse 9. Let's read verse 9 through 13. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. So what this does is the cupbearer, uh, he remembers something, the thing that he had forgotten. He had forgotten Joseph. Well, now, at this moment, he remembers. He begins to explain that to Pharaoh, that when, remember, 
couple years back when you threw me and the baker into prison, when we were there, we had two dreams, and there was this young Hebrew who interpreted those dreams, and what he said came to pass. So he's suggesting Joseph, this young Hebrew, to Pharaoh to make interpretation for his dreams. Verse 14 through 24. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And now Pharaoh is going to repeat the dream to Joseph. Listen to it. Behold, in my dream, and then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke... I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered and thin, blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So Pharaoh makes it known. These are my two dreams, Joseph. Joseph, I heard you could interpret dreams. Joseph says, not I, but God. And so he gives his two dreams to Joseph. Verse 25 through 36, we're going to see the interpretation. Look at it. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty years blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. That's the interpretation of the dream. The look, there's going to be seven years of plenty in the land, abundance in the land, but it's going to be followed by seven years of famine that's going to be so severe that it's going to swallow up those years of abundance because there'll be, there'll be a famine in the land. And now Joseph's going to give an application. Look at the application, verse 33. Here's the application to Pharaoh. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. 
Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So his application is set a man over the people, a wise and discerning man, and let him lead out and for seven years storing up 20% of the produce that comes in, storing up during these years of plenty so that you'll have enough resources, so you'll have enough food during the years of famine. So let's look at Pharaoh's response. Verse 37 through 45, we see Pharaoh's response. And we're going to see, listen, Joseph, the one that's been in the pit, is about to be exalted. He's about to be brought to the palace. Look at it, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. That little phrase in verse 40, order themselves as you command. It's literally they shall kiss. They shall kiss you. They'll kiss your feet. They'll kiss the ground you walk in. Keep go, walk on, keep going. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath paneah And he gave, him in he gave him in marriage Asnath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of of Egypt. So now we see Joseph, a powerful man in Egypt now, a, a man that's at the right hand of the king of Egypt, that he's, he rules with authority. He's got that signet ring, which means he, uh, he puts his stamp of approval on anything that he wants. He's got that, that chain of gold around his neck. He's a rich, wealthy man now. He's got new clothes on, the clothes of a king. This man has been exalted to the palace. Now, lastly here, verse 46 through the end of the chapter, verse 57, we're going to see life at the top. This is Joseph's life at the top. And really, you could break it up into four different sections as, as things that as he lives this life at the top now, what are four things that, they, that he wants us to know here? And number one is this. Look at verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt 
During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. So number one, what do we see Joseph doing? Responding to God's word. God God gave this dream to Pharaoh. God said these things are fixed. Nothing can change it. And so here's Joseph responding. And he's storing up food during those seven plentiful years. Number two, verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So we see Joseph starting a family and having two sons. Third thing we see here, verse 53 The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. So we see Joseph providing for the Egyptians. And then lastly, number four, last verse, verse 57. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. Because the famine was severe over all the earth. We see Joseph now not just providing for the Egyptians, but it says here, for all the earth. Now, before we get into the way we're going to break down this chapter, let me just ask you this question. Why doesn't the book of Genesis end right here? Wouldn't this be a great ending? Joseph has gone through all this terrible suffering, but now... His payday has come. Now he's sitting at the top that the one that was suffering and honored God in his suffering, he's been exalted and raised up to the right hand of the king. He rules and he reigns. Isn't that that a good end of the story? If it was a modern movie, isn't this where it would stop? And the question I want to ask is, why is it that Genesis does not end here? And the reason is this, or at least one reason is this. This is another reminder to us that the Old Testament is not, not, not a book of moralistic stories. In other words, the point of this story, the point of the Joseph narrative is not, it's not just keep enduring suffering and one day your payday will come. The point of the Joseph narrative is not uh, you're a zero now, but you will be a hero. That's not the point. You see, the point of this story, and this is a reminder because it doesn't stop here. There's a Genesis 42 and a 43 and on. 
It doesn't stop here because it's a reminder that this is about bigger things. This is about gospel. This is about Jesus. What do you mean? Well, the scripture tells us, remember Galatians 3.8, that the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. You remember, remember that, Galatians 3.8? You mean the gospel? That's, that's New Testament stuff, but it says the gospel was preached to Abraham. What do you mean? Well, it goes on to tell us Abraham was given a promise that Abraham, through your seed, through your lineage, is coming a Messiah that's going to bless all nations. And Joseph is raised up to protect that seed so that that Messiah will come. This is about Jesus. This is about the Messiah. This is about the gospel. It's not just some moralistic story. So Genesis 41 doesn't end here. In fact, even Joseph's life, as we've, as we've already mentioned several times, even Joseph's very life is a picture. It's a type of Jesus Christ. It's a shadow of Jesus Christ. The very details of the way his life is laid out is a picture and shadow of Christ. And so here's what we're going to do. Let's take Genesis 41 under three headings. Three headings. One, the character of God. You can't read this narrative without coming away with big God theology. Number two, the man of faith in the midst of testing. Man of faith in the midst of testing. And number three, the greater than Joseph has come. You remember that in the Gospels? But Jesus says a greater than Solomon or a greater than Jonah is here. This is a greater than Joseph has come. So let's take those three headings. Number one, the character of God. What do we see about God from Genesis chapter 41? Number one, God is faithful. Our God is faithful. Do you remember? You go back to Genesis 37 and God spoke to Joseph through a dream and he and he was despised for those dreams. He was despised for what God had said to him, what God tell him. God showed him that he was going to rule and reign on a massive scale. He had a dream that the sun, the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to him and his brothers and his father and his mother knew exactly what it meant. That he was going to rule and reign on a massive scale. And what we see, because our God is so faithful to his word, that after 13 years of looking like, how in the world is this going to come to pass? Now all of a sudden, he's at the right hand of Pharaoh. He's ruling and reigning on a massive scale. And coming soon, the very ones in his dream who bow down to him, they will bow down to him. Coming very soon in the book of Genesis. And so God, God is faithful. We see that in Genesis 41. He's very Faithful. Brothers and sisters, please memorize Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it and will he not do it? Has he spoken it and will he not bring it to pass? It's a rhetorical question and you're supposed to say yes and amen. He'll do everything that he says because our God is always faithful to his word. And you can know that when you're sitting through 13 years of intense suffering where it seems like it's not being fulfilled. Number two, God is sovereign. God's sovereign. And where do we see that in Genesis 41? Well, we see it here. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. And the first way you see that in chapter 41 is this. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, is in the safest place 
in the world. He's in his sleeping chambers. He's sleep. He's asleep and nobody can harm him there. And yet our sovereign God that controls all things enters into the man's mind and terrifies him with dreams. Our God is sovereign and in control. We see it next with the cupbearer. At just the right time, God jogs the memory. This man had forgotten Joseph for two years. And at just the right time, God jogs the memory of this cupbearer to remember Joseph. And tell Pharaoh who Joseph is. Now Joseph knows, knows, Joseph knows that these dreams, that this remembrance of the cupbearer and everything else on planet earth is, is underneath the sovereign actions, the sovereign control of God. And I say Joseph knows that because I want you to notice how God-centered, how God-centered Joseph is in this passage. Look at verse 16. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 16 says this. Joseph answered Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh asked him, I heard you can interpret dreams. Listen to how God-centered this man is. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He knows that you should attribute all these things to God. It's not in me. God will give you an answer. This is the same thing in the previous chapter. He says to, to the cupbearer and, and the chief baker, he says, does not God control interpretations of dreams? We see the same thing in Daniel chapter 2 as Nebuchadnezzar seeks an interpretation from Daniel. And he says, not me, but there's a God that knows all secrets. So this is a God-centered man. Look at verse 25. <clears throat> verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now you imagine this, the most powerful man on the planet hearing that. This man thinks that he is a little God. He thinks he's a God. And you imagine him saying, God just invaded your mind. The real God invaded your mind. And he's given you a little insight of what he's about to do. He's not asking for your permission. He's not asking for your advice. He's just, he's just graciously letting you know it's about to go down. It's a God-centered man. Look at verse 28. It is as I told Pharaoh, Joseph says, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Again, God's not asking your permission. He's telling you what he's about to do. Verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams, remember two dreams, Joseph says the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about this is fixed by God. He gave you two dreams to let you know it's about to happen soon. It's fixed and nothing, nothing can change it. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Even the most powerful man on planet earth can do nothing about what God's about to do. It's fixed. It's secure. It's going to happen. He's not asking Pharaoh's permission. Joseph attributes these things to God. God is faithful and God is in control. Brothers and sisters, I wonder what you need to apply this to this morning. I want Genesis 41 to be a help to you. 
What is it in your life right now that you need to apply these truths to? Are God's faithful and he's perfectly in control? There's not one renegade molecule on planet Earth that's outside of God's control and he always fulfills his word. What do you need to apply that to right now in your life? He's faithful and he's sovereign. He's in control. It's our God. Second, the second heading, let's look at the man of faith in the midst of testing. Now, Joseph is certainly, Joseph is certainly the man of faith here, and he's also in the midst of testing. We know that from Psalm 105, verse 19, where it speaks about Joseph, and it says, while the word was waiting to be fulfilled, the word of the Lord tested him. So he's being tested here. Now, there's different ways you can be tested. So first, you've got the testing of suffering, which Joseph experienced, the testing of suffering. Think about it, 13 intense years of being wronged, of being abused, of being framed and lied about and wrongfully imprisoned. Just imagine the, the suffering that this man has gone through. And yet, what is, what is he doing at the very end? We read chapter 41, and at the very end of his suffering, what do we see? What I just read to you was five times, God, God, God. God, God, this man's in the midst of suffering, and yet he's a God-centered, God-exalting man right in the midst of it. So he's been tested by suffering, and yet he's a man of faith right in the midst of it. There's a quote that I love that I think might be fitting right here. It's from Charles Spurgeon. He says, whenever we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. So imagine him in the midst of suffering, 13 years of being done wrong. Whenever you can't trace God's hand, you must trust God's heart. And it certainly seems like Joseph leaned against the promises that were given to his grandfather, his great-grandfather, his father. He leans in and trusts the heart of God. And so now, 13 years of suffering, that's the testing of suffering. Now, now the testing's over with, right? No more testing, right? Wrong. There's, an, there's another kind of testing it's called the testing of prosperity. The testing of prosperity. And this one is actually more dangerous. Now, here's what I mean. Joseph is about to enter into, he's entering into prosperity. He's had the testing of suffering. Now he's, enter, he's, enter, he's not over with. He's entering into the testing of prosperity. You remember Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, where, where Paul, he said he had learned how to a base, and he had learned how to abound. You know, both of these are things you have to learn how to do. You need to learn how to endure the testing of suffering when you're in base. You must learn how to endure the testing of prosperity whenever you abound. If you go read Deuteronomy chapter 8, you see it all over Deuteronomy 8. You remember that chapter? The people of God are getting ready to go into the promised land. And God tells them in Deuteronomy 8, He says, He says, listen, I have tested you in the wilderness these 40 years. I've been testing you in the wilderness. You've, you had no food and I provided manna. He tells them the things that they've gone through, this testing of suffering in the wilderness. But then he says, but look, I'm about to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm, brought, I'm about to bring you to a place where there's plenty, where you will never lack anything. That's where I'm about to bring you. But the testing ain't over. He says this, beware, 
Deuteronomy 8 says, take heed, beware, lest when you get into that land of prosperity, it says this, lest you forget your God. Lest you forget your God. It's a testing of prosperity. Dustin said last week when he taught Genesis 40 that he needed to teach us to uh, teach us to suffer. And so I see from Genesis 41, I need to teach us to prosper. We need to learn to do both. Maybe this is the reason, if you remember Proverbs 30, verse 7 through 9, that the writer of Proverbs there says, God, give me neither poverty nor riches, but just feed me with the bread allotted to me. Lest I be poor and steal and profane your name, or lest I be full, abundance, prosperity, and deny you and dishonor my Lord. So Joseph's certainly entering into the, temp- the testing of prosperity. So what's the danger? When you're being tested like that, what's the danger? The danger is this. That you get comfortable in your abundance. You get comfortable in your prosperity. You get comfortable and you no longer feel your need for the God of comfort. That you've got all these visual things, all these material things, and all of a sudden your heart, your affections are wrapped up in what you can see to the neglect of the unseen. The invisible God and those invisible promises and the hope of what is to come. You All of a sudden your affections are no longer wrapped up there because they're wrapped up in the things of this life. That's the danger in the testing of prosperity. So Joseph would face it. He would face this sort of temptation, this sort of testing. And one way we see it in Genesis 41 is the way, if you notice, remember what we just read, notice the way they tried to Egyptianize Joseph. They try to conform him to the world. So he's being... He's being tested by prosperity. We know that, by the way, that they attempt to Egyptianize him. Not only is he given unimaginable wealth and power, but they even changed the way he looks. Remember when they brought him to the king? They shaved him and put new clothes on him. When his brothers show up later, they don't even know he's a Hebrew. They think he's an Egyptian. They make him even look like an Egyptian. But not only that, it says in verse 45, they give him, a, they give him an Egyptian name. And that name makes reference to a false Egyptian god. And not only that, they give him a pagan wife who also has a name that means she belongs to Neith, a false Egyptian god. And this wife, this, this wife that he's given is from a family that's a priestly family, a, a family that leads the worship to false gods. And so he's given this pagan wife and a pagan name. He's living in a pagan land. He's feeling all this intense pressure to be Egyptianized. He's feeling intense pressure to be made like the world. And Christians face similar things, do they not? What does it say in Romans 12 too? Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Or James 1.27 is talking about pure and undefiled religion. And one of the things it says about pure and undefiled religion before God is this. They remain unspotted from the world. Don't let the world stain you. Be unspotted from the world. Come out and be separate, it says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 John chapter 3 verse 15 says, Don't love the world or the things in the world. 
you love the world, how can the love of the Father dwell in you? And so just like Joseph, Christians are tempted to be Egyptianized or made worldly. Now, I believe Joseph stands as an example for us. Here's the man that's being tested with some of the most uh, power, the, the best that the world has to offer right here. He's being tested with all that the world can give. And yet he stands firm and he resists worldliness. And Joseph is a beautiful example to us. I want you to think about that. What is he clinging to? If you remember, Joseph has a great-grandfather, Abraham, and a grandfather, Isaac, and a dad, Jacob. And all three of these men were men that had had an, uh, an experience with God. They knew God, and they received promises from God. In fact, they received the same promise from God. That through you, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people. And through your people is going to come a Messiah that's going to bless all the nations. And so you imagine Joseph in those years of suffering, 13 years of suffering, clinging to that invisible promise. Can you imagine that? Clinging to the God of his fathers, that covenant, clinging to it in that time. And that's where he finds hope. But what about when prosperity comes? Does he keep Clinging to the covenant, does he keep holding on to the invisible promise whenever prosperity comes? Does he do that? And the answer from chapter 41 is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. And I'll I'll just give you a couple reasons that we see that. Here's a couple reasons we see that from Genesis 41. One, he gives his boys Hebrew names. Did you notice that? If you look at verse 50 through 52... He gives his boy Hebrew names, Manasseh and Ephraim. Don't give him Egyptian names like he's got this new Egyptian name. He didn't give him that. He gives them Hebrew names. Listen, if that doesn't seem like much to you, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And, and here's why. Everybody at this time in this culture, everybody wants to be Egyptianized. Everybody wants to be where Joseph is, except for Joseph He's still clinging to the covenant. He wants to be identified with the Hebrews, with the people of God. Now the people of God got nothing to show for. All they have is promises that have yet to be fulfilled. That's all that they've got. And yet he's clinging there. So he gives his boys Hebrew names. Now think of the arguments that could be uh, waged against Joseph by his friends. But Joseph, what about all the wealth And the power of Egypt. Why are you giving them Hebrew names? What about all the wealth and the power of Egypt? All that's available to you there. And Joseph said, yeah, but they don't have a promise of a Messiah. Or maybe they say this. Joseph, your people rejected you. Don't you remember when your brothers rejected you and sold you into slavery? Don't you remember what they did to you? Why are you giving them Hebrew names? And Joseph says, Manasseh. What does that mean? Look at it right here, Manasseh. Verse 51. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Now obviously, it doesn't mean he forgot about his Father existed, his father's existence, his family's existence. What he's getting at is he, he's 
forgotten all the hardship. He's forgotten all the wrong that was done to him. We're going to see this later down the line, right? When he looks at his brothers and said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I will save you. I'll provide you with bread. But Joseph, why are you giving them Hebrew names? Why are you giving them Hebrew? They rejected you, Manasseh. Manasseh, he says, I can let that stuff go. I can let that stuff go. You know, there's a tendency when somebody, when somebody uh, you know, rises to power or some, rises to some sort of prosperity to stick it to those who hurt them, right? And he had a chance to do that, to stick it to the ones that hurt him. But that's not the gospel, is it? And so we wouldn't have a picture of the gospel if that was here. The gospel was not love those who love you and destroy those who hate you. That's not the gospel. If God would, would have that sort of disposition, we'd all burn in hell forever. But rather, the gospel is that Christ loved us even while we were sinners. He loved us even while we were his enemies. He laid down his life for those that, that despise him and would spit in his face. And so here we see Manasseh. And so how do we know Joseph was being faithful in the testing of prosperity? One, look at, look at what he named his boys, Hebrew names. Two, and I love this, Joseph is unimpressed with what the world has to offer. <laughs> he is, he's, he's just unimpressed. He's, he's not impressed with what the world has offered him. <clears throat> how do you know that? <clears throat> look at verse 52. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What did he just call Egypt? The land of his affliction. Now you imagine at this point he's got a couple sons. He's, he's a good chunk. I mean, it's, we're about to hit the famine years. He's a good bit into this seven years of, of plenty and abundance. So he's been living it up for a while. And he speaks this word and says, that's the land of my affliction. You imagine one of his friends. Did you just call this the land? You call this affliction? Joseph, you calling what you're going through right now, you're calling that affliction? Y'all, the word literally means poverty. He's the, he calls Egypt and this this. Time where he's reigning and ruling with all the wealth and power. He says, this is the land of my poverty. It means misery. This is the land of my misery. Joseph, you call Egypt right now the land of your affliction? So what does this mean? What's going on here? It means this. It means that Joseph wanted what God promised more than all the treasures of Egypt. Joseph wanted what God promised more than all the treasures of this world. Or you can say it like this. He found more joy, more pleasure in the invisible, unfulfilled promises of God that are connected to his family. He found more joy and pleasure there than he did in the visible, attainable riches of this world. You remember his uncle Remember Joseph's uncle, Esau? He wasn't like that. Remember Esau? says that Esau was willing to give up his inheritance, to give up his, his inheritance and the promises of God. He'd give it up for just a bowl of soup. He'd give it up for lunch. But Joseph would not trade all the riches and wealth and power 
that the world can offer of the invisible, beautiful promise of God and a hope of that which is to come. Now, there's another example that you don't have to flip there, but really quickly. Hebrews chapter 11. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 24 says this about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. You know, Moses had it made too. But he refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? What's in his heart? Listen, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. You understand that? That Moses thought, I would rather suffer with the people of God. I'd rather suffer under the reproach of Jesus than have all the passing pleasures of this world. You know, Paul did the same thing, the Apostle Paul, in uh, Philippians chapter 3. It says that, that he counted everything else as dung compared to, the, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. And you know, that's the choice that every single follower of Christ makes. Luke 14 says, unless you forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. So brothers and sisters, that's the call, right? That's the call that we've entered into. Or or if you haven't, I want you to enter into that Christ. I want Christ more than everything else. Even if it's the sufferings of Christ. Even if it's the pain, the poverty that are found in Christ. I want that more than all the riches of this world. And that's the decision Joseph makes here. Joseph counted Egypt not as his final payday. So Genesis isn't over. But he counted Egypt as the land of his affliction. Which is the reason the last, you know, the the very last word of Genesis is Joseph saying, look, y'all going to be here for a while. And then God's going to pull you out. He's going to exodus you out of this land, back to the promised land. And Joseph said, don't leave my bones here. Don't even leave my dead bones here. Take me back to the promised land. Third, last heading. The greater than Joseph has come. Now I want you to think for just a minute about the massive gap between Joseph's humiliation and Joseph, Joseph's exaltation. Now you, I know you, all of us here, we've had some lows in our life, we've had some highs. We never had lows and highs like this. Okay, think about the massive gap between his humiliation and his exaltation. He goes from prisoner and slave to prince of the world. Think about that gap accomplished in one day. He goes from no name, nobody to verse 57 says all the earth is gathered at his door. Wanting bread. Think about that gap for a minute. He goes from taking orders from everybody to everybody else taking orders from him. He goes from the lowest place to the highest place. Just think about the gap of man. He was low, low, low. And now he's exalted and lifted high, high, high. Now has anybody ever in all of creation experienced a greater gap 
from humiliation to exaltation than Joseph. Yep. The one who is the greater than Joseph. Uh, Jesus Christ himself. Now his life, Joseph's life, is a picture, is a, is a type of that greater than Joseph. Both of them, Joseph and Jesus, were promised to rule and reign on a massive scale. But first, mo- both of them must enter into their humiliation. Jesus' humiliation was deeper. And then both of them would be exalted to the right hand of majesty. But Jesus' exaltation was higher. And both of them displayed mercy. Mercy. Now let's look at those three things quickly. Number one, Jesus' humiliation was deeper than Joseph's humiliation. Remember, Joseph suffered. Yes, he suffered. It was horrible. But he suffered under the wrath of man. Jesus suffered under the wrath of God. Imagine Jesus there on that cross. It's, It's worse than being sold into slavery. It's worse than being beaten. It's worse than going up on that auction block. It's worse than being wrongly accused and thrown into prison and feeling like you're wasting your life. Worse than all of that, Jesus goes to a cross and the sun hides its face and the wrath of Almighty God is poured out on Jesus instead of us. His humiliation was deeper than Joseph's. And not only that, the whole time Joseph is in his humiliation, the Lord never forsook him. He was not forsaken by God. It says it over and over again. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. But not Jesus. His humiliation was deeper. He was forsaken by his father. You remember his words on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is because you deserve to be forsaken. I deserve to be forsaken. And be thrown into the, the, the pit of fire forever. And Jesus was forsaken in your place. His humiliation was deeper than Joseph's. Secondly, Jesus, his exaltation was higher. Higher than Joseph's exaltation. Joseph was exalted to the highest earthly throne. Think about it. He was exalted to the highest earthly throne that little phrase i told you about that meant that that said that that everybody was commanded to kiss the king to kiss him it's this picture of bowing down and kiss the ground he walks on or bow down and kiss his feet it says that they took him out in the chariot and and they they scream before joseph bow the knee bow the knee bow the knee can you see all the people hitting their knees and kissing the ground on which his chariot rides He's exalted to the highest earthly throne. But Jesus was exalted higher. He was exalted to the throne of the universe, the highest heavenly throne. Psalm 2 says, I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. It goes on to say, kiss the son, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Philippians 2 says it tells us that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess Christ Jesus is Lord. On the earth, above the earth, under the earth, under the the sea, they all bow down to King Jesus. He's exalted to the highest place. Now, could you imagine being there that day and actually getting to see Joseph go from the pit to the palace? 
Especially if you knew those promises. Especially if you knew this man. Could you imagine the beauty of watching that man go from a, a slave, a prisoner in the dirt, to the highest place in the kingdom? Could you imagine seeing that? But more beautiful than that, can you imagine seeing this? That Jesus, Jesus Christ the Savior, crucified for sinners, rises from the dead, walks on earth 40 days with His people to give eyewitnesses to His resurrection, and then ascends on high to the right hand of the majesty. What if you could be with the angels and see it? Let me read something to you that might give you a little bit of a visual This is from Daniel chapter 7. A little glimpse into Jesus' ascension, His exaltation. Listen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That just said man. Human. And He came to the Ancient of Days. And listen to me. Men don't do that. The angels are going, what is unfolding right here? One like a son of man just walked his way right up to the ancient of days, right up to the God of glory. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now you could pause here and you could flip to Psalm 110 and you could get a little bit of the conversation there between the Father and the Son where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till all your enemies are made your footstool. And then verse 14 says, And to him, that Son of Man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, not just Egypt, all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Joseph's ended, not Jesus' dominion. It's an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus' exaltation was higher. And then lastly, Jesus' mercy was greater than Joseph's mercy. So we can see here Joseph's mercy. Just try to think about this for a minute. He's exalted to the highest place. And what's the first glimpse we get of his rule and his reign as, as the ruler of the land. What's the first glimpse we get? Do we see him going on a rampage to, to obliterate his enemies? Do we see him going after his brothers who betrayed him? Or Potiphar's wife who framed him? Or Potiphar who threw him in jail? Or the cupbearer who forgot about him? Do we see him rising up in his moment of power and destroying them? No, what do we see? We see him providing In Genesis 41, salvation. Temporary, but we see Joseph in mercy providing salvation to all those in Egypt, including his enemies, and as we'll keep reading, even his brothers that portrayed him. We see him providing salvation and mercy. But Jesus' mercy is greater. Would you think about this for a minute? Again, Jesus dies on the cross for sinners. Rises from the dead, walks on her 40 days, shows himself to eyewitnesses, ascends on high to the right hand of the throne of God. And 10 days later, what happens? 10 days later, Peter puts his finger on a group of people and says, Jesus, whom you crucified, 
He's talking to the very people that crucified Jesus. And what does King Jesus do? Does he kill them all, destroy them all? It says he saves 3,000 souls. He gives not temporary salvation, but eternal salvation to those that hate him and crucified him. The mercy of Jesus is greater. And so let me end with this verse. John chapter 3. Everybody knows verse 16, but I'm going to read verse 17. You know, Joseph, he wasn't sent to Egypt to condemn them, but to save them, right? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for letting us read and take in your word. Lord, we do. We lift you up. You're, you're the God of faithfulness, Lord. Everything you speak comes to pass because you're, you're a mighty God that always performs your word. We lift you up as the sovereign God, Lord. We believe that not one molecule is out of place, but you control it all. God, help us to rest in your sovereignty and your faithfulness. God, when we're tested with sufferings, I pray, God, that you would make us like this man. That we would be faithful in the midst of sufferings to trust you, Lord. That even when we can't see your hand, that we would trust your heart. God, in moments of prosperity, when things seem to be going so well, and God, we seem to have so much of it here, I pray, God, that you would make us faithful in the midst of prosperity, that our affections would not be wrapped up in the things of this world and this life, but we would fill our need for the God of comfort, Lord, that, we would, that our affections would be so wrapped up in you, Lord, that you'd be our greatest treasure, that we count everything else as dung compared to knowing Christ Jesus, our Savior. God, bring our hearts into that place. And God, we worship you for Christ. We worship you, Lord. You sent your Son to die for us, not to condemn us, but to save us. We praise you, Lord, for the deep humiliation of Jesus, for the great exaltation of our King. And Lord Jesus, for your great mercy. Thank you for saving your enemies. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.